Welcome to Mouthwash, TBD Conference's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference and also founder of Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. My guest today is TBD alumni, Zoe Skamen. A force for change and expert on brands and changing customer allegiances, Zoe is one of today's most in-demand, inquisitive and forward-thinking minds out there. She's also not afraid to tell it how it is, get people to follow and be the change she wants to see in the world. We had a great talk. Find out more at bodacious.b or her Substack newsletter, Musings of a Wandering Mind. Enjoy the show. Um, okay, on with tonight's fresh chat. Zoe currently runs a strategy consultancy called Bodacious, but previously worked with the likes of Google, Coca-Cola, Unilever, PepsiCo, Adidas, and agencies like Drigger 5, where she was the senior strategy director. Zoe currently works with the likes of the NBA Mark Cuban Ventures. Uh, she's making waves around the world to take on modern marketing, fandom, and uh, I love her can-do, will-do attitude. Uh, Zoe recently uh, was very kindly uh, accepted my invitation to speak at the TBD conference, and I am thrilled to welcome her to Mouthwash. Zoe, welcome to the show. How's your Thank baby? you. Uh, not too bad, thank you. Yeah, I've been rushing around, but feeling very relaxed and very zen uh, ahead of this session, so hopefully I'll be making some sense. Excellent, excellent. I love that. Um, well, this should be fun. Uh, Mouthwash isn't just me chatting with Zoe, Zoe. Uh, I want to um, have Zoe answer your questions as well. So if you want to do that, use the hashtag, put your question in there, and I'll do my best to get them in. And who knows, uh, Zoe might even go through the rest of them afterwards and answer you directly. She is that nice. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, where to begin? Um, I always say that. Let's start with what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Uh, the first thing I thought of this morning was my ridiculous life admin to-do list because uh, I like to basically pile too much on my plate so that I'm always stressed. Um, so, yeah, that's what I was thinking about this morning. So sorting out uh, cat sitting, buying a new car, uh, house hunting, and also trying to obviously make sure I don't drop the balls from a work front as well. So that's kind of where my head's at. I was going to say, I was like, if there's one word I use to describe you to other people, it's busy. Um, so <laughs> yeah. My next question was going to be, um, how have the last 12 months been for you? Because, you know, you were known before, but really the last 12 months, you're blown up uh, talking about everything from NFTs, which we'll talk about later to fandom. Fandom's your, mm. your big thing. But how, how has it been? Um, I think it's been a roller coaster, just like it has been for everybody else, I suppose, you know, to differing levels. And I think that... I started out um, the beginning of the pandemic, you know, lockdown, all of that kind of stuff, you know, just as worried as everybody else was in terms of, you know, shit, where's my next contract going to come from? And uh, how am I going to ride through this? And obviously, initially thinking it's only going to be three weeks, and then it'll all blow over. Um, and I think, to be honest, it was the first time where I'd really kind of sat down um, and been so bored shitless, to be honest, that I sat there and kind of went, right, what do I want to do? And what kind of work do I want to do? And where do I want to see my life, you know, in the next couple of years? And I hadn't really given myself that opportunity because, as you said, you know, with the busyness, sometimes when you're busy and you don't have that reflection time, which is kind of forced upon you, you just end up running on this conveyor belt and almost kind of hiding behind the busyness and procrastinating with the busyness so that you don't actually have that time to, to really think and to really kind of plan. And I think that a kind of silver lining of the lockdown was that I had that time. And so I started to become a bit more deliberate in terms of what I wanted to build for myself and, and kind of where I wanted to go to next. And I think it's also because, you know, obviously the entire world was online. It was just the right timing um, in terms of what I was writing about and what I was saying. You know, I almost had a kind of captive audience because everyone was just glued to Twitter and social media and their emails and that kind of stuff. 
And I think it was just really opportune timing, you know, as awful as that sounds, because obviously we were going through such a harrowing moment in history as well. For me, you know, it was also a fantastic springboard. Mm. I think before we, before we get specific, I have, a, I have a sort of observation, but also a sort of question for you as well. One thing I've noticed about your career and the work that you do is that you always seem to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Yes. Um, many, I think, listening are probably thinking or doing something new or maybe taking a risk sort of now that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Just before we get going, it's probably a, a question better for the end of the interview, but let's start now. Uh, do you have any advice for pre- on practical steps for like taking big leaps? I think make sure that you've got a decent footing to jump from. Um, that's one thing that I would say. I think it really depends on what kind of leap you're taking. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had lots and lots of people ask me throughout the course of the last year, how do I start my own business, for example? Or, you know, how do I jump from agency life or full-time work into something that's kind of more contract or freelance or a lifestyle business that can suit me? And my answer to that is always make sure you've got a decent um basically foundation in terms of make sure you've got some cash in the bank um, make sure you're not going to kind of completely upend your life if you do something as drastic as that but also I think smaller leaps is just make sure you're kind of doing it initially as a bit of a, a side project and I know that I hate the word side projects it sounds like hustle culture um, but just make sure you're not necessarily throwing yourself full tilt into it make sure you've still got a kind of uh, you know, a strong base elsewhere, and then, you know, start moving towards different things. And I always describe myself kind of like an octopus, I guess. I've always got lots of different tentacles in sort of different directions, looking at where things are going. So, you know, at the moment, obviously, people will think that I'm obsessed with NFTs, and to a certain extent, maybe I am. But I've also got, you know, tentacles in lots of other areas as well. And I'm just kind of seeing how things map out, and also seeing how to connect the dots, you know, amongst each of those things as well. So, I never go full tilt into just one specific thing. I'm always looking at, you know, at least five or six. I think that's the smarter thing these days, isn't it? Is having, uh, A, trying to see the connections, but also, uh, like you say, um, really trying to keep abreast of everything. I, I find it challenging, you know, yeah. for work, but also, you know, the journalism side of sometimes I do. But, um, yeah, it's about finding those North Stars. But like you say, not stretching yourself too thin is always a, is a good thing as well. But um, you, you seem to do very well at identifying those areas and then sort of, like you say, laser focusing in on them. The fandoms was the one you've mentioned. Let's talk about that um, quickly. So um, future fandoms, um, we've had a lot of uh, interest over the last uh, year because we've all been locked down and that sort of stuff. Where are we right now and what's changing? With fandoms specifically? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the fandom side of things, I mean, obviously, the critique that I always get is fandoms are nothing new. They've been around for, you know, decades and decades. And I'm not saying they're anything new. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, kind of a sparkly new thing. I think what's interesting and what has been accelerated thanks to the lockdown and thanks to the pandemic is the infrastructure and the software and tools and monetization opportunities that fans now have that they didn't have previously. So, you know, if you think about musicians, for example, and what we started to see at the beginning of the the pandemic in terms of micro monetization features coming up on Facebook streams or YouTube streams or Patreon or OnlyFans, um, and also looking at micro monetization um, in Twitch, for example, as well. Previously, we didn't really have those options. They were very, very popular in terms of you know, the creator economy and those types of things in China, but we didn't have them and we didn't necessarily need them. But obviously, the minute that the, the lockdown happened, suddenly we had a huge number of people, especially within the worlds of entertainment, that were kind of fucked, to be honest. You know, They had no way to ply their trade. 
other than online and the difficulty with the online systems that they were using, especially if it was a kind of, you know, a live stream or a YouTube or something like that, is that other than the ad based sponsor system in terms of, you know, getting a tiny percentage of whatever ad revenue, you know, YouTube can make off the back of you, there was no way for them to make any money. And so the demand from the artists, but also the demand from the fans to want to support the artists that they loved fast track the development of those different you know infrastructure pieces that we needed and i think we basically have seen an acceleration that probably would have taken you know 5 to 7 years had the pandemic not happened all condensed into you know the better part of 6 or 12 months and i think especially in the worlds of entertainment the creator economy people looking for you know alternative ways to to make money with their skill set especially if it, it involves some sort of um you know online writing or creation of some kind um they've just jumped on it and i and i think that's one of the big things that is shifting and changing fandoms is the ability for fans to now go direct to you know the artists the writers the the actors whatever it is that they want that they love you know or it could be a course provider it could be a thought leader in some category and we've broken down you know the gigantic gatekeeping that used to be there and now fans can fund you know an artist directly themselves you know they can look at you know a tiered system they can look at getting special access or permission or exclusives or something like that so that barrier that we had between you know creator and fan or artist and fan has come tumbling down and also now creators and, and artists are waking up to the fact that actually they don't need to go through all of these gatekeepers they don't need to rely on brand sponsorships they don't need to you know get paid pittance through youtube or facebook etc they can get funded directly from their fans so i think the way that I see fandom now is it is it's transformational on a number of different levels and it's transformational because of the power they have to you know basically fund the art that they love and to navigate someone's career in terms of you know the money that they give them but also to feed back because when that barrier has come down and crumbled between you know artist and fan it also means that fans can have more say in terms of, you know, how a song gets put together, how a book gets launched or written, um, you know, how characters develop in terms of, you know, entertainment content and that kind of stuff as well. So it, I think what we're seeing is a kind of an unleashing of the power of fans who have previously been incredible advocates. Um, and obviously, you know, they spend their money on the things that they love, but really they've been quite passive. They've been confined to, you know, forums or meetups or Comic-Con events or something like that. And now we're seeing them actually steering what it is that they love, you know, they are steering culture, which I think is just fascinating and incredible to watch in terms of what that could unlock. Yeah, it feels like um, previously brands sort of had access to the 1%, the super fans, if that makes sense. And then yeah. through the last sort of 12 months, we've extended that 1% to probably, I would say, like 10, maybe 12%. Mm. Everybody seems to sort of feel like, oh, I, I support them. I'll, I'll do something. I want to talk about monetization a little bit later. Let, let's talk at the top sort of level at the moment. I hear the word um, authenticity thrown mm. about when it comes to this area. And I'm always sort of drilling down with people like, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? So <laughs> when you think about... Um, creators and uh, people who are influencers and that sort of stuff. Um, what, what do you think that really means when it's authenticity? Does it does it mean that we have to give up in, in order to be successful, every inch of like oneself to be totally transparent? Or do you think there's a middle ground? Um, I, I never know when it comes to authenticity. Like, do, what where's the spectrum end? Where, do, where does privacy come in? I don't see authenticity through that lens. So I think the way that you're describing it at the moment is that authenticity is about laying yourself bare, you know, and being, you know, fully available or fully transparent. And I don't necessarily think that that is the 
that's the deal that fans are looking for. I think that from a fan perspective and potentially you know, from an artist and creator perspective, authenticity is about the value creation between the fan and the artist. So I don't think it's about giving everything up and, as I said, laying yourself bare. I think it's making sure that you are authentically engaging with your fans. You're creating stuff that they give a shit about. You're creating stuff that they value. You're listening to them. You're opening up feedback loops. And it is a mutually beneficial relationship that goes both ways. That's how I view authenticity. And I think there are, you know, there are some incredible artists doing it at the moment. I think Lil Nas X is probably one of the best. Um, in terms of how he engages his fans during his creative process and also you know how he's engaged his fans recently with the release of Montero and all of the new stuff that he keeps spinning out but he's involving them in the story so they feel part of it they feel like they can shape it they feel like they can help him navigate it in the next kind of direction that he might want to take it so I think that that for me is authenticity it's a kind of mutual benefit as opposed to a complete transparency from a personal perspective. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on um, what type of creator you are. If you are an influencer, quote unquote, and you like taking pictures on Instagram and sort of documenting your life, I, I hear a lot of, and I see the Netflix documentaries and that, that yeah. is, is, is quite destructive in that sort of sense. When it comes to music and those sort of tra more traditional um, verticals and industries, it feels a lot more uh, like there's a plan or a strategy and you don't necessarily have to give up so much. And it's more about feeding the mm. the, the the product and to get a better one and that sort of stuff. I, I'm, I'm really interested in where that sort of goes. When you think about post-pandemic, which we're, we're allegedly in, uh, sorry, not get coming towards, shall we say, sorry, I don't yeah. know anything that nobody else does. Um, I think we'll see, sorry, do you think we'll see a slump in the whole influencer community levels of engagement? Do, are they going to wane, grow stronger as option, more options are available? Where do you see the sort of next 12 to 24 months when it comes to that? I think the numbers will naturally drop a bit, um, especially as, you know, the entire world is desperate to be free for the summer, uh, mm -hmm. obviously, depending where you are in the world. Um, but I think there's definitely going to be an embracing of, you know, freedom, wanting to be around people, wanting to be outdoors to the best of our ability anyway, depending on what happens with, you know, vaccine rollouts, etc. So I do think that naturally numbers will kind of slide. And we're already seeing that. I'm not sure if you saw the Netflix earnings report that came out last week. And unsurprisingly, you know, they haven't necessarily onboarded anywhere near the number of subscribers that they were hoping for. And that's because there's going to be uh, a lot of people not wanting to be on their screens constantly. There's going to be a lot of people potentially cancelling, you know, memberships that they've signed up for for a period of time. But I don't necessarily think that's going to be a permanent slide. I don't think we're going to go anywhere near, you know, back to the numbers of, you know, pandemic era. Because I don't think anybody voluntarily wants to stay in their living room, you know, forever. But I, I don't necessarily think it's going to negatively shift how we have started to, to change the view of who's of value to us and who's interesting to us. And I think, again, what the pandemic sh shone a light on, especially when you mentioned kind of authenticity as well, is who we engage with and how we engage with them. You know, people that we don't know, for example. So we might have built up, um, you know, potentially a, rela a parasocial relationship with an influencer that we were following. And during the pandemic, maybe they just continued to try and flog us stuff in a way that felt insensitive or in a way that felt like it was, you know, divorced from the reality that we were all occupying. And that is a lack of authenticity because it's not a mutually beneficial relationship because it's basically the influencer saying, I just want to flog you shit. I don't really care about how you're feeling, etc. And that's obviously not what we're looking for. So I think that the new relationships that people have struck up and the new ways that they want to engage with creators, I don't see them going anywhere, to be honest. I think that's actually going to increase. 
And I think I, I tweeted something, maybe it was beginning of last year or middle of last year, around the fact that I think creators are going to be the new brands, you know, in many ways, because I think that once you've got an audience and you've got a passionate audience, you can really build a solid brand around that. You know, you can build product spin-offs, you can build service categories. Um, obviously, he's fallen out of favor now, but, you know, David Dobrik, for example, with Dispo and Merch Lines and Mr. Beast with Beast Burger and all of those types of things. And, you know, they're the 1% of the 1% in terms of creators, but they're also making, you know, millions and millions. If you don't need to make millions, if you're just looking at making, you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, you can actually build an entire brand with, you know, a thousand fans or 5,000 fans or something like that. And I think we're going to see more and more of that come to fruition. Again, going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, the infrastructure is there now. You know, we've got creative platforms, um, we've got monetization platforms, we've got Shopify's. You can build a brand, you know, in a day if you really wanted to. The key thing that you need is to cultivate an audience that really cares about you. And I think that people are starting to realize that there is a toolkit for that and that it's possible. De definitely. I think that feeds back into the authenticity of um, people, like how authentic you are from the start and how you grow. I think that's super important and interesting. You touch on a really interesting um, point of view point there, which is the numbers and the money, obviously. Mm. Um, tipping is a hot topic at the moment. It's going to be baked into platforms like the one we're on, Twitter Spaces, but yeah. it's also been in there from the day one to things like Patreon, um, or Patreon rather, yeah. um, which is a membership slash tipping platform that people can use. Um, to OnlyFans, um, which is a subscription site, which also now features tipping as well. Um, it's got everything from personalities involved to esports to comedians to adult entertainers. Do you see digital tipping becoming normalized? Because it's not in this country, it is in America, for example, or is this just step one on a different road to new models of compensation for artists? I think it's the latter. So it's step one on new ways of monetizing, you know, for artists and creators. And again, if you have a look at China. Um, and how China works at the moment in terms of monetization. There is a plethora of different ways that you can get paid as a creator. So tipping is one of them, um, but it can also be subscriptions. It can be limited time access. It can be an access to a course. Um, it could be the ability to WhatsApp you on a weekly basis. It could be that they join a you know, exclusive um, group within the community. So it's a group within a group within a group, for example. So there are so many different ways that you can monetize. And I think some of the best creators in China are building a portfolio of different ways to make money from their audiences and from their communities. Because obviously, the minute that one of them goes, at least you've got, you know, another couple of legs to it. So it's a bit more stable. But I think if you really want to understand, you know, where this is all going, I would definitely have a look at some of the top creators in, in China and actually how they're doing it. And what's interesting in China as well, I gave a talk on this um, at the APG probably about three years ago or something, or why we should be looking at kind of different ent entertainment monetization models in China, um, is because it's not just about being an entertainer or it's not just about being a creator. You know, you've got some incredibly well-paid creators who are university professors, um, who are teaching people English, who are teaching people yoga online, for example, um, or who are, you know, helping kids to draw anime characters or something like that. And they are building their own little niche kingdoms on the internet, depending on the platforms that they're on. And so I think when we think about creators, we often default to entertainment because that's what we've seen coming through the ranks in the lockdown. So, you know, game streamers, um, you know, singers, TikTokers, all of that kind of stuff. But I think we're just starting to see the potential and creator is not limited to that space. It could be anything. It could be someone that's teaching you how to do gardening, for example. You could make a little empire out of that. 
So I think that's what's so exciting and interesting in terms of where it could go next. Yeah, I'm I'm always interested when I hear of like fringe people doing things. So yeah. like you say, your gardening example, or you know, just somebody who blew up because they took a photo of a certain thing, and that sort of stuff. I I think it's part um what's the word entrepreneurship of people they know what they've got and that sort mm-hmm. of thing and then part other people sort of tell them they've got stuff and i see that those people grow in very different ways um i don't know if you saw the news today but only fans announced a tv station on apple tv and roku which i found mm-hmm. incredibly interesting considering the content that could be found on those things yeah. um they're going to make a tv show about creators um do you think that's a sign that celebrities being reinvented or it's just a logical reaction to or evolution of uh inequality and a defunct class system? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think that there is a dark side to the creator economy, just as there's an amazing side to the creator economy. So mm-hmm. I think it is a reinvention of celebrity. So I think that we're starting to become much more comfortable with the idea of finding our niche and finding our little tribes and you know the weirdos whose kind of strange interests and preferences match ours. Um, I think it is a reaction to, you know, basically the better part of a decade screaming into the void on social media and not really being able to find traction or your people or a sense of community in many ways. Um, You know, also, I think what is happening is we are reassembling around interest networks as opposed to social networks. So if you think about Facebook, for example, or Instagram, when you first set up your Facebook and you first set up your Instagram, you followed people that you knew. So, you know, your mum your great aunt, uh, your cousin that you've not seen for for 10 years, that guy that you knew at school when you were seven, that kind of stuff. And you were following those people, which was great, you know, for a period of time, but also your interests diverge quite considerably. So, you know, one of them might be mouthing off about, I don't know, you know, the far right or something. You're just like, shit, this is a bit much. Someone else might be obsessed with fishing equipment and that's boring you, you know, shitless as well. So you don't want to look at that kind of stuff. So what's then happening is we're starting to reshape our social experiences online around interests. So we're seeking out people who have got the same interests as us and then we're building community from there. So I think that, you know, the embracing of niche interest networks is something that is only just beginning. It's very nascent right now. And I think we're going to see a lot of new community platforms actually built, especially for these niche networks. And I think we're going to be members of probably a number of different ones. And maybe there'll be some sort of, um, you know, personal homepage, like a link tree or something that we can then go and access all of our different groups that we're a part of or different networks, um, which you're already seeing on platforms like Discord, for example, which is a fantastic um, precursor, I guess, or a fantastic kind of spotlight on what it could look like when the internet starts to kind of diverge in different ways as well. So I think that's one thing. But then also recognizing, you know, the downside of it as well. Obviously, we're all familiar with the gig economy, which initially when the gig economy first arrived, it was wrapped in, you know, shiny marketing speak of like work for yourself, independence, all that kind of shit. And then we started realizing, you know, with the likes of Deliveroo and Uber, that actually it was a really precarious position for the vast majority of gig workers to be in. And they've got no healthcare, They've got no foundation. They've got really no cash flow. They're treated like crap you know, all of that kind of stuff as well. And I think, you know, a lot of people on OnlyFans, and there was some great writing from Taylor Lorenz, actually, on the New York Times about this, they're making pittance. And a lot of them are obviously, you know, trying to get into sex work as well, which was, you know, an easier thing for some young women to get into. And so they're putting themselves in a really vulnerable position, desperately trying to kind of build a following, but they're earning nothing for it at the same time. So I think there is a kind of dark side to it. And I think that's why, you know, if you haven't read it, Lee Jin's piece on why we need a creator middle class is so important. 
and the work that she's actually compiling, which is, you know, we've got our, as I said, the 1% of the 1% with Mr. Beast, David Dobrik, you know, Charlie D'Amelio, for example. And then we've also got the people who are really, really struggling um, and cannot make ends meet, which is heartbreaking. And what we're missing at the moment is the ability to build a creator middle class, which actually benefits a much wider array of people. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen those stories. Um, they seem to be more and more frequent these days, which I think, um, you know, is not just a sign of the times, like you say, but there is something a lot deeper going on that I think needs to be addressed. And I'm not quite sure who or how we address it, but it definitely um, feels it's not talked about enough. Uh, 100%. So thank you for shining a light on that. I definitely agree with you on that one. Um when it comes, I feel like the last 12 months has been a baptism by fire for a lot of brands in this area. Um, some have got it right, some have got it wrong. But let's talk about what you think brands should do uh, when they're sort of dipping their toe in the water in this area. How, um, how can they avoid getting it wrong? Specifically with fandoms or the creator economy? Uh, either or, or both. I think, again, it goes back to that kind of mutually beneficial piece. Um, and I think one of the things that frustrates me at the moment is that a lot of brands and, you know, brand managers or, you know, social media managers or whatever, they reference their social followings on Instagram and Facebook and, and TikTok, etc. And they call them a community, but they're not. If you actually look up the definition of community, it is the ability for community members to interact comfortably with each other in a peer-to-peer -peer nature, basically. But what you're doing when you've got an Instagram following or a Facebook following or something like that is you are still broadcasting to a mostly passive audience who have the ability to interact with you in very limited, shallow ways. So they can comment, they can share, they can like, they can watch, but that's not a community that is still a relatively passive audience. And so I think that one of the big shifts that needs to happen is the waking up to what the definition of community really is and why you should be nurturing something like that. And I also think, you know, from a social media perspective, what we've also tended to do with brands is we have said, um, you know, our social media community management is not an important job. Let's give it to the intern or let's give it to someone who's just graduated university and, you know, we can pay them peanuts and they can just respond to comments. And it's actually a really dangerous way to do it because if you piss off your community nowadays, especially, you know, a community can make or break, you know, the future of a brand or the success of a product or, you know, a business. And I think we're starting to see that more and more. And obviously you've got a lot of VCs in Silicon Valley talking about community moats and they're really starting to invest in companies that what they have, you know, which they say have community moats, which essentially is the community is so strong, it gives you a moat against competitors that might also want to get into this space. So that's the kind of businesses that they're looking for. So now what we need to start thinking about is not building community as a nice to have at the end, which we, you know, kick along to the intern and say, you manage this. And if it goes tits up, raise the alarm, we may come and help you. But rather, we need to start shifting community to the front end of the process and really start thinking you know, along the lines of the, you know, the brand we want to create and the product we want to shift, but also what kind of community do we want to build? What are we giving to this audience? How are we involving them in terms of, you know, feedback loops on the brand, on where we go next, on product feedback, on even product creation as well, which is really interesting. And I think that's potentially where brands should go to next. But also the way that they tend to view, you know, quote unquote communities, it's very transactional. And it's very extractive. So they build community in order to then have what they think is a free audience to then send you know, marketing messages to. And I think that with this new dynamic that's coming into play, especially with the creator economy, lots and lots of people who are part of richer communities that have a real mutual benefit are being primed to expect more. And they're starting to realize that brands are offering less. 
And so if you have a choice of a number of different communities that you want to be a part of as a fan, where you really feel like you're being rewarded for your contribution, be that financial, be that creative, be that purely being an advocate and being active in that community, and you feel like you're getting treated with, you know, very little interest from a brand, but the creator is really kind of feeding, you know, their community, you feel like it's a vibrant space. It's not just that you're following that creator, but actually the people in that community make it worthwhile as well. That's going to be the space that you start spending more time in. And it will also be the space that when that creator starts dropping merch lines or product spinoffs, you're going to be much more interested in those areas. So I think from a brand's perspective, it is a gigantic mindset shift in terms of how to treat audiences. So they're not just kind of passive consumers of the shit that you decide to throw at them, but they are active participants in a vibrant community that you need to spend time and energy creating. I like you said time and energy at the uh, at the end there. That to me usually means money. Do you have a rough, have you seen any research to sort of suggest and give brands a helpful guideline of what amount of money they should be spending on community engagement or um that's the thing. Not not working with influencers. That's an easy number that you can Google. But how 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 do people work it into their day? You know, what, they've only got so many hours in a day. Do they hire more people? Do they you know change what they're doing? What, what would be your best advice there? I think the answer is how long is a piece of string? I mean, it it really depends <laughs> on you know who are you as a brand? How big is your community going to be from day one? How do you want to cultivate it? I think you definitely need to hire people that know what they're doing, or at least kind of learn the process of what you're doing. And there's so many different factors involved. So where are you going to build this community? You know, are you going to host it on a platform like Mighty Networks, for example? Um, are you going to, you know, white label it? What kind of content strategy are you putting in there? Um, how are you driving people to it? Is it going to be monetized? So is it subscription based, which obviously means that you need to start thinking about economic factors as well. So there's, there's lots and lots of decisions that you need to make as you start going down that path. But I think the first thing is, is really thinking about, you know, what kind of community do you want to build? What do you want to be known for? What value are you exchanging, you know, with the people that choose to be part of that community? Could you pilot it, you know, in some way? I think, you know, one of the best examples out there at the moment is Nike NBG, which is nothing but gold. So Michelle Goad, who's incredible, um, and he's a friend, she is basically the head of Gen Z innovation at Nike. And she has created a closed pilot community called NBG. And it's for young women. Um, and basically, it's a bit of a mashup between TikTok, Depop, Nike, um, and, you know, basically network, a bunch of other kind of entertainment, Snapchat style stuff as well. And you can only enter it if you apply and you've got to share your social handle to make sure that you can be let in. And they're just doing it really carefully because what they didn't want to do is kind of release it as a free fall to everyone and then have it fall flat on its ass. So they're just kind of letting people in in cohorts and in groups and learning as they go and actually refining you know, the quality of the community, the engagement levels that they have, you know, how they actually manifest um, interactions between other members, because the more you have interactions in other members, the more network effect you create. And the more the value of the community is the people within the community and the members, as opposed to just the top down brand or creator who are driving it. And that also is super helpful to stop creators and brands having to be relentless content um, factories that just constantly spin stuff out because that's not sustainable and it's also not particularly valuable. So what you need to be thinking about is how you can facilitate a community that comes together and builds together or, you know, creates together or just has something that they can share. And I think that what Nike are doing with NBG is a really, really smart way of doing it. 
that is a really good point, I think, is not not trying to boil the whole ocean at once. Yeah. Twitter is a great example of doing this when they've just released spaces. Um, they obviously have the Google form, which you can go to if you want to um, apply to be a host. They'll be releasing it to the world soon. But what they really did well, I think, is they um, picked very specific groups to start with, um, underrepresented um, groups, ethnic minorities and that sort of stuff. They really wanted to get them talking and sort of on the on the platform so super interesting i don't think it's gone perfectly but i think they'd be the first to admit it they're very open with what's gone right and wrong but um definitely an interesting strategy that hasn't been adopted um so yeah I, that's a very good um tip i think um all right where are we okay so um thinking post pandemic and no lockdown mm-hmm. um fandom in general and sort of us creating authentic offline experiences do you think the two are going to merge or do you think we're about to see a massive resurgence in brand and sort of offline activities post-pandemic i think we're going to see an overlay of the two um i think probably one of the best ways to look at it is what's happening within music so obviously what we learned within music during the pandemic was that um basically kind of, you know, alternate reality, gaming, uh, very different types of sort of curated, navigated experiences were something that fans were just loving. You know, obviously everyone knows the Travis Scott and Astro world, but I think probably one of the best examples was Billie Eilish, you know, and what she did with her kind of AR experience for want of a better term and, you know, letting fans in early, you know, giving them a bit of a kind of monologue chat at the beginning, letting them into an exclusive merch store that they could actually go into that kind of looked a bit like a game set. Um, And then, you know, choreographing all of the, you know, the kind of animated effects and everything to the song um, that she was playing. It was just, it was incredible to watch from start to finish. And I think that what we will see coming out of that is actually we're going to see much more mixed reality events. So I think, for example, what we're going to see is kind of a live gig that will have AR overlays over the top of it, the ability to kind of get in there and interact in slightly different ways. Maybe you can actually interact with the band, you know, via your phone, for example, um, and actually help to navigate the performance. And I think at the same time, it's probably going to be live streamed and the people who are watching from home or the people who are not there in a live scenario will be able to have a different experience. Maybe they can enter a waiting room, for example, 30 minutes beforehand, which is an exclusive backstage camera of what's going on. Um, Maybe they can enter into exclusive, you know, chats with band members, for example, straight after the gig. Maybe they can help to curate the set list, you know, two days before or something like that. So I think it's going to be a big mishmash of the best of what we've seen from the pandemic and the stuff that we've really missed from, you know, being in the real world, basically. Yeah, I, I must admit, I've missed a lot of things. I'm not really a massive um, concert goer and that sort of stuff, but I've, I've spoken to a lot of people and they are very, very uh, excited to get back to it and sort of what yes. they like and that's that sort surprise. of thing. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, let's dwell on brands for a bit and then I want to end on NFTs because I know you are excited about those. Um, <laughs> And not that I'm not, but I've got my reservations, which we'll talk about. Um, so uh, two two last things on um, brands. I it often, it often appears to me that brands just want to be loved for some strange reason. But the majority of consumers are really at odds with that. It's kind of like, I just use it. I like it. I'm not really, I wouldn't use the L word for it. Mm-hmm. Consumers may love a product or service, but they aren't really r- willing to run a marathon for them, I find. How do brands turn users into sh- more sharers, if that makes sense? You know, whether that's younger generation, older generation. How do brands in this new world that we're moving into get people to, to use your phrase, give a shit? Again, I think it's, you know, it totally depends on the brand. You know, are you selling toilet paper or are you selling running shoes? Because that's going to have very different levels of kind of, you know, brand love and and all that kind of stuff. But I think, 
I think the main thing is, you know, first and foremost, make sure that your product isn't shit, which is kind of the basics. Um, but also, I think, you know, entertain people or, you know, inform people, educate people, give them something. And I think that's one of the big things that we've not really done. You know, we've almost tried to be a bit too smart in the ad industry and we've created stuff that they couldn't really give a shit about. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time we're talking to ourselves or we're sort of creating social content because we need to fill a, a calendar and we need to do a throwback Thursday or something like that. But I don't really think we are sitting and thinking, how can we truly really entertain these people? How can we add something a little bit more? Um, and I think, you know, one of my favorite examples of that over the last couple of months or so has definitely been Ocean Spray and how they've kind of embraced this new radical world of, you know, creator, you know, creations for want of a better term. So, you know, obviously we all know the the sort of skateboard thing and the fact that they kind of embraced it. And then obviously it went a bit nuts and everybody's on a skateboard chugging, you know, cranberry juice. But then I think what was interesting is what they did with their Thanksgiving ad where basically they went to a bunch of different TikTok creators and they said, you've got total creative license, total creative freedom, and here's a budget. And can you create something to basically, you know, get people excited about our cranberry sauce in a can, you know, for Thanksgiving. And, you know, what came out of that was just these bizarre creations. And one of them is a song and it's a young guy in it, I forget his name. And he's just, you know, at one point he's sitting on the loo, another point he's swearing, you know, he's smushing this kind of cranberry sauce all over his face, looking like he's in ecstasy with it. That would never, ever have been signed off by an ad agency or a client in a million years. But I think that's the beauty of it. I think a lot of it is understanding that in order to kind of create brand love in, in many ways now, you need to give up a little bit of control. And you need to turn your brand over to other people and allow them a level of license to interpret it in the way that works for their audiences. Because that's the other thing as well. You know, you can pay through the nose for ad space. You can do your programmatic and all that kind of stuff. But what you really want is to access the audiences that these creators command. And they've built those audiences themselves because the audiences react really well to whatever stuff they're putting out. So if you go to a creator and you basically say, you know, the brand needs to be you know, talked about like this, the logo needs to be this big, can you make sure you say this tagline, please don't swear, please don't do X, Y, Z. What you're doing is totally screwing up the opportunity that you've got to engage with that audience because you're dictating to the creator how you think they should talk to their audience. But what you really need to be doing is letting them talk to the audience in the way they know best because they've got a proven track record in building engagement and community. So there's a certain level of kind of bravery involved here. And there's a certain level of, you know, also maybe walking away from ad agencies in, in many cases and going straight to creators to make this stuff, which is scary, you know, for a lot of ad agencies. So they probably wouldn't recommend it. Um, but I think that that's kind of what we need to start experimenting with is you want to access really engaged, you know, super vibrant, interested communities, and you want to put your brand in front of them, then you need to let whoever owns that audience do it in the way that they see fit. It definitely feels like we've got a new sort of like job title coming, like, you know, chief culture, uh, online culture officer or something like that. A lot of these things feel sort of to a lot of people that I've spoken with and clients that they are they're not they're not a space we should play with. We, we're not that cool enough and that sort of thing. So I, I really like that point of sort of, you know, just getting involved and sort of trusting the creators that you're working with. I do feel that's really important. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's a massive thing. And also, you know, so my ex-creative partner, Ridley Scott, is a guy called Chris Ironman who's now the head of TikTok North America Creative Lab. So he is well into this space and we talk about it a lot. 
uh, offline. And, you know, he's a huge believer of this. And both of us have been a big believer in this, you know, for the last couple of years, which is giving over creative control is what starts to produce really interesting and fresh ideas, which connect better with audiences than traditional advertising ever would. And I think that's where we need to be putting more, more kind of time and energy. No, I, I agree. All right, brace yourself. Ben gave us a, uh, a question um, <laughs> early on, so I'm going to read it out for people. So as communication channels become increasingly intermingled and decentralized, what is the future of brand strategy when brands no longer retain total control of their development? Fandoms are awesome, but no one wants to be destroyed by their fandom. Your response, Zoe. <laughs> I think it's a mixture. So what I'm not saying is throw your brand into the wind, cross your fingers and hope for the best and, you know, bunker down and hope the brand's still there in the morning. I think it's a mixture of providing flexible structures to figure out kind of what your brand is about, what it stands for, who you want to work with, who you don't want to work with, the kind of products you want to produce. But I think what we've done previously is we have packed in to these tight little frameworks um, all of the stuff that we want for a brand to be and we've turned it into these kind of really restrictive concrete bibles that we cannot sway from and that has restricted our creative capabilities and output it's restricted the way that we work um, it's meant that we do annual planning and it takes us six months to execute a campaign for two weeks um, there's not enough speed and yeah flexibility um, and ability to throw caution to the wind, you know, at each time, because it's constantly, oh, no, computer says, no, that's too hard. That's too scary. That's too much. You know, we don't we can't control it. And I think the way to do, you know, future brand strategy is to have a rough structure, as I mentioned, or a rough idea. And then just to try lots of kind of small bets and to, to maintain the flexibility to be able to just go, yeah, fuck it, let's throw a brief to that creator. We've got 24 hours, let's see what comes out. And, you know, it's a massive, massive lesson that I've been learning with MCX. We work at the most intense speed that I've ever think I've worked at. And it's terrifying because nothing is perfect. Nothing can be perfected. You don't have time. You've just got to get it out. And when it goes out, you know, it hits the wild and people either love it or they don't. But you learn every single time that you do that. So I think you know, it's, it's so at odds with the way that I was working when I was in agency world, which was so process heavy, check-ins, uh, approvals, feedbacks, you know, all of that stuff to the point that actually what you ended up with is death by a thousand cuts and something that was so bland that people wouldn't even notice if it was on the television screen in front of them. And I think what happens instead when you let go of that control a little bit more within that structure is, you know, you start to put some mad bets out there and the mad bets might gain traction and you might get something that starts off as a small bet and turns into a gigantic IP franchise. So I think there is a level of just having just to kind of wing it to a certain extent and being comfortable with that. But again, that's a mindset shift in terms of the way that we're used to working, both from a client side and an agency side. But it is something that some of the best brands in the world are doing. I mean, I had a kind of in-depth conversation with FaZe Clan, uh, you know, in their head of comms on Friday, I think last week. And, you know, it was just such a lovely meeting of the minds because it's exactly what they're doing. And look at their success. I mean, it's just crazy. But they don't have a defined plan. You know, they are, as I said, you know, embracing the flywheel with a piece that I wrote. When, they, when I spoke to them, they said it's like you're, you know, you know, what's going on in our heads better than we do. And you've articulated it in a way that we hadn't previously, but it's exactly how they work. And I think that we need to embrace more of that 
otherwise, you know, the face clans of the world are going to usurp, you know, the big brands of what we understand now because they just can't keep up. Yeah, I, 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 it leads me on to a question that I'll, I was going to ask at the end, but I might as well ask it now and we'll nip on to NFTs really quickly. Um, I believe I'm correct in saying that you've said you've never read a strategy and advertising book in your life and yet nope. you work with massive players. And I think that says A, volumes about you, but also B, the industry. Yeah. Do you think that strategists or, or the strategy industry can be its own worst enemy or do you think we're just too hard on strategists? I think we are our own worst enemy in many ways. I think we nitpick everything. I think we are professional critics, naysayers, negative Nancys. Uh, I think people are obsessed with paint by numbers, which is why they read all the books, which is why they pedestal the typical old white men who have said, you know, this is how planning is supposed to be. And I wrote this 25 years ago and we've got to stick to that. Absolute bollocks. Honestly, it pisses me off so much. Yes, there are some kind of fundamental rules and that kind of stuff that you can stick to, but marketing, the art of marketing is to gain attention, to gain traction, to hack into culture, to get a brand front and center. If you are still following the old rules of 25 years ago in today's culture, you are royally fucked as a strategist and you're not very good at your job. You need to be able to move with the times, you need to be able to evolve, and you need to be comfortable with being uncertain in what you're doing. And I think that uncertainty scares the crap out of a very, you know, a huge amount of people. And they want, they want certainty, you know, they want to make sure they're, you know, quote, unquote, doing it right. They think it's black and white. It's not. It's all of the shades of grey in the middle. There is no right way to do strategy. And there's no wrong way to do strategy. It is a process of trial and error and learning. And yes, you know, there are lots and lots of frameworks and some of them might come in useful now and again, but you learn those frameworks so you can unlearn them and then you can mash them together and turn them into a Frankenstein's monster of whatever bespoke creation you need, depending on the brief in front of you and the need in front of you. But you do not repeat the same process over and over and over again and expect it to work because it doesn't. It's just not how we should be functioning. And that's why, you know, I think I piss a lot of people off. I think I frustrate a lot of people because I'm constantly out there banging the drum saying that, you know, these books are not Bibles. They are, you know, helpful starters, maybe, but you learn by doing and you learn by undoing and trying different ways of approaching something and being comfortable with kind of making it up as you go along. And I, I don't think that that many strategists that I'm aware of feel okay in that space when they feel like they're on shaky ground i think they want certainty and that's just not an option definitely i, I think the one thing that agencies could really help all of their people is going on uncertainty courses um the be more pirate guys are actually doing an uncertainty course i'm going on i think it starts next week i'm, I'm very intrigued to see what they're they're going to be telling the world um Right, we are swiftly coming to the, the close. But right, let's talk about NFTs. So I think it was a Twitter space um, when I heard you speak about NFTs um, publicly. I've, I've read a lot of yeah. stuff that you put out. Um, there's many opinions on their long-term viability. You're pretty bullish on their potential. Um, mm -hmm. Why so? And can you give um, a layman's term of an NFT just in case there is no one in this space <laughs> that knows what an NFT is? Yes, I'll start with that. So NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, and basically, all it means is it's a, it's a certificate of authenticity or a certificate of ownership. That's all it is. Um, and it's not the thing. It's the process of actually putting something on the blockchain. So a ledger that says, 
this is a tick box to say that this person owns this thing. That That's all it is. Um, and I think a lot of people, as I said, are naysayers on it because they are looking at the use cases that are right in front of them. And some of the use cases, not going to lie, are fucking ridiculous. You know, so you've got Ellen, for example, um, has drawn a really awful line of a cat. And then she's taken a selfie of her, you know, drawing of a cat. And she's trying to sell that as an NFT. And I think that is stupid. I think it's disrespectful because it costs money you know, to mint NFTs and it costs, you know, energy in some ways and it costs other people money to buy them. And I think those ridiculous use cases are what people are seeing more and more in the news. And they're thinking this is ridiculous. You're basically packaging up gifts and stupid photos and trying to sell them for thousands of dollars. But that is not what an NFT or actually what the potential of NFTs are about. What they are about is the infrastructure that sits behind them, which is smart contracts. And I think that's the thing that's going to be changing the way that you know potentially we do business, the way we store value, the way we exchange cultural currency, the way we create cultural currency can change because of the smart contract. So it is not about packaging up gifts and trying to you know flog them for a million dollars or something like that. Instead, it's about thinking of how NFTs and the smart contracts behind them start to add a new economic layer onto the web which means you know you can actually mint something or nft something and then you have got ownership over that thing and that means that somebody can you know take what you've got or rent it um, and use it in a different way and if somebody sells your nft once you've got rid of it they can earn you can earn royalties in perpetuity so i think i said it on the the twitter spaces that i did with with uh, dave nemitz um, last week or the week before but it's about getting rid of this myth of the starving artist and, you know, for so long, especially for art, you know, we have looked at it as something that you give away for free. Or if you're going to be a musician, you're probably not going to earn very much. If you're going to be an artist, you're probably not going to earn very much. You know, those kind of things. And actually with NFTs, which is only one use case within the arts world, that changes because you can create, you know, for example, um, a, a thread for a track or a stem for a track. And, you know, it could just be like a saxophone stem for a track that's 30 seconds long, and you can mint that and that is yours. If somebody then wants to use that stem of saxophone in their song, they can basically pay you uh, for use of that NFT. They don't have the copyright, but they can pay you for the use of it and you get paid a royalty for that. So that's a very simplistic version of it. But basically, what it starts to do is layer in these incredible economic infrastructure pieces which we've never had before um, and I think that to me is what is so exciting uh, with the potential of it so I think if you're just looking at it as like silly photos and gifts and that kind of stuff and you think that's an NFT you don't understand NFTs that's not what I'm getting excited about I'm getting excited about what the smart contracts and the ownership economy and the economic layer can start to really unlock but also what we can build on top of it as well. I think that unlock word is absolutely key for it and a lot of getting it right in a lot of people's heads because I think um, there are a lot of people out there that are, you know, get rich quick schemes. That's, that's you know, that sort of comes with anything new, doesn't it? But I think when it comes to um, smart contracts and certainly looking at um, the blockchain in that sort of way, you start to really freak people out because yeah, it's... Yeah you have it you know mortgages you know you need things to be stable and you know if people there's trust at the end of the day isn't it that's totally. everything that blockchain's about on so you know if you start rocking those boats you have you sort of have new loci of trusts and that sort of yeah. stuff and i find that that sort of movement of big things like trust really really interesting yeah. um your point about the environment absolutely banging on and um 
you know, we are planting trees on behalf uh, of the <laughs> listeners today. But um, I, I read an interesting thing. I can't remember if it was New York Times, New Yorker or whatever, but um, uh, it was about cities abandoning um, mining um, yeah. of Bitcoin just simply because um, it drives up electricity costs for others around in the area. Yeah. I was um, thinking just when you said that, do you think governments are going to sort of step in on the mining and sort of impact that they, they have in the environment? Or do you think it, they don't really understand it? I don't think governments are going to step in. I think the community, the cryptocurrency community are going to step in. It's already happening. Um, so there are two fundamentally different ways um, that blockchains can work. One is called proof of work, so POW, and one is called proof of stake, which is POS. POW, which is proof of work, that's the one that is environmentally intense. And that's currently what the Ethereum blockchain is. And also Bitcoin is as well. And basically proof of work, I don't want to kind of bore people to death with this stuff. But essentially, it means that in order to kind of prove um, that, you know, you are part of the blockchain, you have your computer has to be on and it has to use up quite a lot of energy doing very complex calculations and kind of you know algebra basically to then prove that you know you are a node in the blockchain and that can be very energy intensive whereas the other option which is proof of stake so pos is actually nothing to do with your computer solving equations and algebra and doesn't really use any energy and instead if you own cryptocurrency or if you own a token for the blockchain you can stake it um, and basically, you are then kind of proving that you are a part of it and you can kind of help grow it from there. So uh, blockchains like Flow, which is what Dapper Labs use for NBA Topshot, are based on proof of stake. And proof of stake is about 99% less energy intensive. So much, much more environmentally friendly. Um, and there are lots of others that are popping up. So Palm NFT is another one that's popping up, which is environmentally friendly. But also the community are aware of this and it is really problematic. And a lot of artists are saying, you know, I really do want to use NFTs to basically be able to earn a living for myself. But I feel bad about this environmental piece. And, you know, there's been a lot enough uproar about it that changes are afoot. So you may have already heard of Ethereum 2. So Ethereum 2 is basically Ethereum, but built on a proof of stake blockchain. And that's being built at the moment. And it's also being tested at the moment as well. Um, and then, you know, as I said, you've got, you know, players like Dapper Labs with Flow, that's going to become much more of a thing that people are going to be able to use as well. So I don't really have an issue with it, because I do see that the natural progression, which is happening really, really quickly, is that the entire crypto com uh, community are running at this really, really hard looking for a solution. And those solutions are coming thick and fast, even in the last couple of weeks, you know, Nifty Gateway coming out of the gate and saying, you know, we are going to be carbon neutral, and we're committed to carbon offsets, planting trees, and then some, and we're potentially going to look at using a different blockchain as well. So I think the pressure is there, you know, the community motivation is there. And, you know, when people kind of shit all over it, the vast majority of people who have come at me and sort of said, oh, you know, you're irresponsible for promoting NFTs, have no idea of proof of work versus proof of stake. So I really would say to people, do your homework. Um, and really understand this before you make a big kind of generic statement saying that all NFTs are bad, because that's not true. Yeah, no, I 100% um, agree with that. I definitely think it's an area where people lose the thread quite quickly, if that makes sense. And yeah. anyone who's, and you, you're very honest about not claiming to be an expert in it, although I would absolutely class you as one of the most based <laughs> on how simple you just made it, if that makes sense. Um, I... Um, Right. We could, last question. Uh, what's exciting um, you at the moment and what are you geeking out to apart from smart contracts? Oh, everything. Um, I think what I'm super excited about at the moment is how all of this stuff is coming together. So 
obviously, I, you know, I, I've been talking about fandoms for ages. I've been talking about the creator economy for ages. I've been talking about the importance of community. Um, and then now I'm talking about NFTs and I'm talking about cryptocurrencies. You know, I did a, I wrote an article on creator monetization infrastructure well over a year ago now. And I did the talk at APG. And what's interesting is all of these things are overlapping now and they're all starting to click together into one kind of, you know, big pointy arrow that is kind of pointing the way towards where it's all going to go next. So I think that's what's really interesting. You know, Jared Dicker wrote a fantastic piece, or was it Patrick Rivera? I can't remember. One of the two wrote a fantastic piece last week called Low Crypto and the Creator Economy. And, you know, it's all going to merge into one area. And I think that's kind of what I was hoping for. So when I started, you know, really researching into fandoms, I started thinking about actually this would be better if we had more monetization infrastructure. And then how do we start to reward fans for the stake that they take, you know, in whoever they're supporting? And that's where crypto comes in. You know, so if you've got social tokens, for example, for your community, your fans can invest in you early on. And then as your career grows or as the IP grows that they love, their equity stake grows. So they're not just getting a warm, fuzzy feeling from emotionally supporting you. They're also getting financial payback. And before crypto arrived, we didn't really have the opportunity to do that. So all of these things are kind of melding together. And I think what I'm super excited about is what this kind of big amorphous soup is going to turn into. And I think I can start to see the shape of that now. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash. <laughs> <laughs>